The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right, um, we're going to get started. I want you to open your Bible to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the Old Testament book directly that directly precedes the, book, the Gospel of Matthew. So you hit the New Testament and just hang a left and it'll be the first book you come to in the Old Testament. Um, here's what we're going to do tonight, and I'm hoping that there is, that there is going to be time, and I think there will be. There should be anyway. Um, my microphone is on, isn't it? I can't, it feels... Sounds, sounds okay? Okay. Um, uh, with Malachi, we are going to read every word in Malachi. Um, it's four chapters, and... Um, I, what I want to do in this book, there's, there's a couple of reasons why I want to do that. One, the, the prophet Malachi, I think, in terms of the Old Testament prophets, might be one of the easier ones to get what he's saying. Uh, might be one of the more straightforward prophets in the Bible. Um, We've all seen over the course of the last however long we've been doing the prophets that it can be a challenge to read the prophets. Malachi, I think, so long as you understand this much of background information, I think you can pretty quickly pick up on what's being said. And I think you can pretty quickly get your toes stepped on just by the words that we read. So you might want to pick them up off the floor. That's just what I'm, I'm advertising. You might want to, and not from anything that I say, just from reading the, the book. I think you're going to hear some cultural parallels is all I'm saying, all right? So maybe not. I don't know. But in my study today, I was like, I could see a lot of cultural parallels that we can draw here. So I'm going to put the words of the text up on the screen after we cover a little bit of background information, and we're going to try as best we can to just plow through this book and see what we can glean there. Um, so I'm going to skip the review portion that we had a couple weeks ago because it was about a, a, a different Old Testament book, and we're just going to go straight to Malachi. So the final source of, the, of Old Testament historical information is the prophet Malachi. Now, little is known about him in particular because... His name means, depending on how, it's tra- how it should be translated, it either means my messenger or his messenger. So, is that a generic name? For, or like a pen name for a prophet that's meant to be anonymous otherwise? Or is there an actual person named Malachi? Either one could be true, alright? We don't know. To be honest, there's a lot of people, I think I'm probably more in the camp that it was, there, there was a guy named Malachi, and it wasn't just a pen name, that it was otherwise anonymous. Uh, but I think either one is potentially an option here because we know so little else about him uh, in terms of his ministry. So what we, do, what we can glean from, at least, is that his ministry preceded the ministry of Ezra and the governorship of Nehemiah by at least a few years. Um, so, and the reason that we know that, he, or we think that he preceded uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is a, a couple of reasons. First, first of all, he doesn't refer to Ezra and Nehemiah at all, uh, which would seem to say that he precedes them uh, since he's around the same time. 
And he is also speaking to the same kind of abuses that both Ezra and Nehemiah address. Now, in Malachi's day, the issues that are going on in Israel are not solved. So Malachi is a prophet of prophets. He's a true prophet. He's going to say what needs to be said, and then the book is over, right? There's no, and the people did it, you know? Like Ezra and Nehemiah tend to be a little bit more historical books, so they're going to explain the actions of the people, what the people said, what the people did, and all of those kinds of things, and uh, some decisions that they made, some people that, uh, that actually uh, you know, kind of came around, and we're going to see even some of that in, in, in this book as well. But, uh, but the point is, it seems though as though the issues that Ezra and Nehemiah are dealing with come on the back end of Malachi's prophecy. The, the prophecy of Malachi, in other words, is preparing the people for the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, so what are the people going through? Well, the people are once again repeating some of the same problems of their ancestors, among which is the intermarriage with pagans and the fealty to their Persian overlords. So remember, just kind of put your, get your bearings just real quick. The people of Israel have been released from, cap, from Babylonian captivity because the Persian army has come in and conquered Babylon. Remember that? And they released all of the prisoners. Cyrus did. They released them immediately to go back, and they started building. They commenced the building. It sat for a little while. They finally got something going around 515. And then some years later, they're kind of living with this shabby-looking little temple, and they're, they very quickly, into the 400s, went right back to the patterns of their ancestors. So Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah are going to come along later in you know, after 500, somewhere around the late 400s BC, and they're going to start saying, you guys got to, this is ridiculous. We can't just keep going back to the same thing. We're going to end up back in Babylon again, right? So it, it's, they're kind of basically the Lord's final warning that you really need to heed the message that was sent to your ancestors that were dragged off into Babylon. So that's the purpose, at least, of Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So they have intermarried with pagan people. And we're going to see that's not the only sin. That's part of the sin of intermarriage. But that is a, a, a huge one. They've intermarried with pagans. So what does that end up doing? Well, it produces children who, one, they can't even speak the Jewish language, the Hebrew language. They don't have any uh, affiliation or knowledge of God. They don't even desire to worship Him because their mothers are pagan. And they tend to follow, pagan religions it tends to be are a lot easier to follow. All right. <laughs> Can I get an amen somebody? Uh, so they, they tend to be, you know, you got a little wooden statue, throw them some food and you're good to go. Right. It tends to be kind of how it goes. So they've got that going on on one side. And then on the other side, they are still under the control of the Persian Empire. So if, if let's, let's put it this way. If you get bonus points with your government for paying homage to that government's gods, then how easy is it when you have no other obligations to any other god to just go, sure, that's fine. I'll pick up your pantheon, right? We're in 
what has been labeled by the culture Pride Month. Right? There is social capital that you can now gain by bowing down to and paying homage to the pagan gods. We're in the same situation. I'm telling you right now, where we are today in this ideological war that we're in is not any different than it has been for 2,000 years. You're not rare, right? This is the norm. In fact, what may be rare is not having that for even a brief window of time. There's few people in history, few Christians in history, that would ever wonder what it's like to be physically persecuted. There's virtually no Christians in history that would wonder what it's like to be philosophically persecuted. Right? That, that, that's commonplace. So, get used to it. It's here to stay. Alright? You're constantly going to be in battle. So, point is, they're dealing with the same thing. Same thing going on. But when you don't have a God who you believe to be the creator of all, who accepts no other, no other uh, uh, rivals, when you don't have that, well then bowing down to the pagan gods of the culture, because that will gain you social capital, is super easy. Right? Might as well pick that one up too. Every company in this country is doing it. Right? So, there you go. That Bud Light. Um, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> They kind of learned the lesson, maybe. (laughs) Uh, All right. But (laughs) the difference, obviously, um, that's kind of basically what I was saying, the difference between the Jews in Malachi's day and their soon-to-be-exiled ancestors, so going back several hundred years, the difference between those two groups was that the Israelites that are in Malachi's day don't have much of a nation to to boast about, Right? It's not like, it's not like the, Jew, the Jews in Malachi's day could really say, we can withstand the Persian army if we decide we're not going to bow down to your gods and they take offense to that. We can stop them with our military. No. Not at all. There's no way. they get run over like a Mack truck over a Coke can. I mean, it would just be a desecration. So they have really no nation or national identity much less a worship of a, of a god to actually push back against the Persians at all. So they're a soft target. So those are huge, huge differences. So knowing that in the background, okay, kind of get an idea of the picture of their culture. Let's go into the text of Malachi. Obviously the first verse is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. All right, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? All right. Who is Esau? He ate the stew. Yeah. He's Jacob's brother. What nation is is, is a representative of Esau? What nation then did Esau found? 
Edom. Okay, so when he says is not Esau Jacob's brother, Jacob's nation is Israel. Jacob's name got changed to Israel later on. That's why they're called Israel. Okay, got it? So Esau, Edom, Israel, and Jacob. Okay. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country. That's what Edom looks like, is a hill country. It's a huge, huge hill cleft. And left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, so here we go, this is Esau's children. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Well, who was recently shattered and rebuilt the ruins? Who is that? What nation has recently been shattered and, and the, na the ruins been ruined? Israel did, right? So he's saying, you ask how, he's posing the question to himself. You ask how I've loved you? Well, if Edom over here, who is Jacob's brother, yet I've loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. If Edom was shattered and they said, I'm going to rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Right, so what is he saying? What's his answer? He says, I have loved you. That's the statement. The question that he poses back to himself is, you say, how have you loved us? What is his answer? You are preserved. That's your answer. You were shattered, and I allowed you to be rebuilt. In fact, nay, I would even say, I caused you to be rebuilt. If that happened to another nation whom I don't care for, I would not allow them to be rebuilt. Though they would try, I would tear them back down again. So what is the answer then? I care for you, I love you, how? Because you're here. I have allowed you to live, is the answer. That's a heck of an answer. All right. So at the open of the book of Malachi, the Lord himself is addressing the people. He declares to them his unaltered and continuous love. The question concerning God's love for them concerns the actual experience of that love in the people's concrete existence and adversities. In what way has God manifested His love for them? That's, that's kind of the, the prevailing question that comes back. So, you can imagine, I'm sure, in life where we read time and again God's love for us, His unfailing love for us, but any given Sunday, you may not feel like that love is real or that it's true, depending on where you're at. Given Israel's cultural history and where they are right now, that their ancestors were just recently enslaved in Babylon, 
that they've taken great pains to rebuild their nation, and they're now back to a very small, just a very uh, microscopic, by comparison, portion of the people that once were there. There is a feeling that in their existence, I don't feel that love right now. And God's answer to them is, you're here, aren't you? The fact that I'm allowing you to live and rebuild is proof of my love for you. So their expectations of a glorious renewal of their national life, in other words, they, they, they may have expected, let's, we'll return back to the days of glory of before, had been disappointed. The promised kingdom of the Messiah had still not dawned. Israel as a nation was not really delivered and glorified. They still remained under Persian rule and were suffering from all kinds of pests and plagues, which we will see in a little bit, uh, a little bit later on. You can see the passages noted there. Uh, so there's a lot of things that they're suffering from. They, and, and one big, uh, really important uh, aspect of this is the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is nowhere to be found. He's still not here. So where is this Messiah that we keep being promised? Seems to be absent. Well, I'm afraid that's only going to get worse in the coming years. But we're going to see why Malachi is situated at the end of our English Bibles in just a minute. The Lord's love for His covenant people has been proven by God in the respective histories and destinies of Israel and Edom and had to be acknowledged by Israel. So his point to them is, well, here's the deal. Edom, who is also a descendant from Abraham, who is of the same family and who is a child of Isaac, I rejected him altogether. Look how Israel has fared by comparison to Esau. So, there's your answer. Okay. So, but then God's got some business to deal with. So the rest of the letter is, sit down, be quiet, and listen to what i got to say. All right? Is basically how the rest of this, this prophecy goes. So although God has reiterated His unconditional love toward His people, He still must confront them for their many evil practices. And here's, here, here we go. This, is, this contains basically the, the rest of the letter, or most of it anyway. Uh, and I think, you're go- I think when you hear this, this is, you have the text in front of you, so if you can't see that, you have it in your packet and all that kind of stuff too, and you have your Bible, so open that too if you need to. Um, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master... Where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You see a pattern, don't you? Where God plays the role of the questioner here. And he's like, you're going to say this. Let me go ahead and preempt your question. So he says the priests have despised his name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering 
polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of God? Do you see what I mean? How easy it is to understand? It's super, it's just very straightforward. There's, there's hardly anything to argue about here. Um, <laughs> so, will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. What does that mean? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. What, What is he wishing there was? Yeah, he's wanting them to stop compromising. What is he wishing there? What is he saying here? Oh, that there was one. Yeah, if there was one priest. Oh, that there was one priest who would just close the doors of the temple and say, you're not coming in with that blind animal. So that's what they're doing. They're bringing it, they're, they're looking amongst their, their litter, and they're saying, well, there's the runt of the litter. He's, you know, got a peg leg and a, one eye. He'll do. He's not good for, you know, reproducing, so we'll, we'll take him up to the altar. We'll give him to the Lord. And, and if there was just one priest, just one among you, who would say, you're not coming in here with that. You go home and get your best one, and until you do, we're not even going to start the fires. right? But there's not even that there. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Is he talking about the people? Who's he talking about? It's the priest right here. Oh, priests. All right. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What is he concerned about? His name being great where? Among the nations. And nations is nations and Gentiles is the same word. Okay? So anywhere you see that, typically. Goyim, all right, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices it to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared 
among the nations. You get the theme of what he's going for? And what are they doing instead, but treating that altar as though it is meaningless? Now, let's just do a little bit of thinking why they might be thinking that. Why might they be thinking that giving sacrifices to the Lord is meaningless? It doesn't matter at all. Why do you think they would think that? Got to be part of it. They're having to rebuild when they were taken out into exile. We, in their minds, our ancestors served you faithfully. They were tr- true to the one true God. We know that's not true, but they, in their minds they were. And this is how you treated them. It brings to mind, doesn't it, is there a God in heaven? What happened to the Jews after the Holocaust? Right? I mean... Can you find a Jew now that even believes in God? I mean, there are certainly some, and there are some coming to Christ, but if, you, if there was a, a, a big room full of Jews and you just pointed to one, chances are he's going to be an atheist. I mean, the odds are really good that he's going to be an atheist. So a pattern of suffering can do that to those who are not his. First and foremost, God demands pure offerings. So these are a list of the evils that he's going to go through. The first thing is he demands pure offerings, but they have despised the name of the Lord by offering defiled sacrifices on his altar. Defiled sacrifices on his altar. We're going to keep going. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, To give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. What's the problem here? What are they not doing? Laying it to heart. What does that mean? Yeah, not taking sack or or his commands, seriously. Now, O priest, this command is for you if you will not listen. If you will not take it to heart. In other words, if you will not hear what I'm saying. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. That's a heck of a punishment. The dung of your offspring. That's a worse punishment. You, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you. That my covenant with Levi, who is that? The priests, yep, the line, line of the priests. So he's still dealing with the priests. May stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. That is life and peace. I gave them to Levi and his offspring. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Uh, the high priest didn't just waltz into the Holy of Holies, did he? No, right? He feared the Lord, and so he didn't do that. True instruction was in his mouth. And remember that, true instruction was in his mouth. There was fear in how he responded in worship, and then there was true instruction in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. And he's not just talking about one individual, he's talking about the the line of the priesthood in general. 
For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Remember that word. Guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So what's the priest's job? He's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. So what is he supposed to do? He's to guard knowledge. In other words, he's to take the scriptures and he's to give them to the people to let them know what they should, be, should and should not be doing. But you have turned aside from the way. Oh, they're also to live that out, right? Okay. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The words guard and keep are very important. It's the same word reiterated again. Guard and keep is not only what the priests were to do for the temple and for the law, it's what Adam was supposed to do in the garden. Was to guard and keep. Adam failed. Priesthood has failed. And they both had essentially the same job. Here is the word of God. Guard it and keep it. They didn't, and they were banished out east. All right. He promises to send a curse upon the priest, Levi, because they should guard knowledge and keep his ways. Like Adam, they were also cursed. By teaching the people truth and living accordingly, they, they have shown partiality in their instruction and have not kept his ways. In other words, the, the people who greased the palms were, uh, you receive an extra blessing from the Lord uh, and you don't get told any hard things and you don't get told no. You think that isn't true today? Boy, howdy, is it true as budgets continue to shrink across church cultures and temptation arises in the heart of the pastor. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. Now, I think he means Israel as a whole. But he calls out one tribe in particular, why? Who has he just spent time with? Calling out. Le no, Levi. The, tri the tri tribe of Levi, right? Which is made up of the priesthood. What comes from Judah? Come on. No, 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 no. Who comes from Judah? There's a lion from the tribe that comes from Judah. Right, Jesus does. But what line does Jesus come from? Kingly line. So the prophets and the kings are all misleading the nation. You got it. All right, we got there. It's okay. All right. But I think he's talking, obviously, Israel as a whole, but he highlights Judah in particular out of that tribe. They're a big tribe, so maybe that's why, but I think it probably has to do with the, king, the kingly nature of that line. Has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah, the leaders has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, 
and has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is part of the reason why I think this is talking about the kingly line has also strained. So the priests have strained, and the kings have strained. All the leaders in Israel have strained from the word. And have married a daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. What's their problem? What have they done? They've married pagan women. That was the first problem. But what did they do in order to marry pagan women? They left the wife of their youth to do so. So it sounds like Solomon a little bit, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a little bit like David? Doesn't it sound... All those things I've been telling you in 1 Samuel, hey, they're not bragging about David taking on all these wives. Right? It's a statement of fact. His household grew. He took on more wives, his household grew. That tends to happen when you take on more wives. You know that? You know how it works by this point. I get it. So it tends to happen, but they're not bragging. No, no. It's setting up a trail of breadcrumbs for what happens in 2 Samuel 11 when he cheats on all of his wives with Bathsheba, right? But here you see it come home to roost. The whole line. Not only do you take on foreign women, you left your original wife to do so. It's a big problem. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithful. That's a strong word to men. Guard your family. It's just, I think when you're young, maybe, and newly married, maybe, you think, or, or maybe even when you, as you get older, you think to yourself, there's not a woman out there that would want this, right? It's kind of what you think. The devil has a way of making you appear like Tom Cruise in their dreams, the man of their dreams. And all of a sudden, the family comes tumbling down. And it's a temptation that I think as, as men, we have to be diligent about guarding. Whether we're old or young. The reality is, part of what we're seeing, even in our culture at large, is a man problem. We see it also in the church, where men don't want to lead. Even men that would otherwise be qualified to lead capable of leading, refuse leadership, refuse positions of authority, even though they should be in positions of authority, because it's too much responsibility. It's too hard. 
Too much time. The reality is it's the man's responsibility to lead. Part of what we talked about last week and dealt with even at the Southern Baptist Convention and all the things going on with egalitarianism and all those kinds of things in the culture, part of it is that age-long battle of sin and its effects and how it affects the home and how it affects the you know, uh, relationship between the sexes. Part of it also is a failure of men, of godly men, to actively lead people, congregations, families. It's our responsibility to guard and keep. Yes, some of it can be, and I think that's, that's, uh, I think that's probably some allusions in there to it, and it's so often referred to in that way. I think this is literally true. I think this is what they are literally doing, is taking on foreign wives. And the reason is because that is actually a problem addressed in Ezra and Nehemiah, is that your children don't even know the Jewish language. You know, this is an issue. You don't even know how to speak Hebrew. How are you going to read the Bible? You know, right? So, like, that's a huge problem going on. So I think he's talking literally here. So many other places, you're right, it, it's figurative. And he might even mean some of that, too. Not only are their sacrifices tainted, but they have profaned the sanctuary by marrying daughters of foreign gods, in many cases divorcing their Jewish wives to do so. Profane the sanctuary. All right, quickly here. We gotta go. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil, oh boy, pick up your feet, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. What are they saying? This is, this is the newspaper, all right? By the way, all of a sudden, you as a culture entirely are saying, everyone who does evil, of course, they're not saying that. They're saying, everyone who does X, Y, or Z, everyone who divorces or marries these women, this, this is a good thing. Oh, that's good. And you know what? God loves you just as you are. You're a special little package that the Lord has put together, and he loves you just as you are. You don't need to change a thing. And he delights in you. So that's one part of it, is they've taken things that God has said is sin and it's evil, and you call it good, and then you attach God's name to it as if he has approved those things. But watch this. It's not just that you do that. It's then you say, or by asking, where is the God of justice? If he didn't approve of it, wouldn't he strike you dead? Is he? You say that God calls this sin, or he doesn't love this or that thing. Well, where is he? Here I am bringing my sacrifice with my pagan wife. Same-sex relationship. Fill in the blank. I bring it in, and it seems to not bother him. You seem to be the only one bothered by it, Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger. There's Malachi. 
and He will prepare the way before Me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? So His messenger, not just Malachi, His messenger, that's literally the word Malachi, but the messenger He's talking about is coming is, well, He ain't coming he ain't coming with just words. All right, not at all. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. I guess it's like that, uh, what is that, pumice soap? Is it, is that what it's called, the lava soap? <laughs> it has a, has a grit to it, it feels like sandpaper. Uh, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be sw- a swift witness against the sorcerer. So we, we see some are going to be refined, but he's going to be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who, tr- who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me. This is what he said earlier in the letter. This was the problem. You do not fear me. And I'm bringing one in, my messenger, and he's going to ensure that my people fear me and the rest of them, what happens to them? He's going to be a swift witness against them. Well, we're going to find out what that means in just a second. They not only approve of evil, but they say that God delights in it. The fact that evildoers in general were not immediately punished is interpreted to mean that the Lord endorsed evil and was pleased with the evildoers but the day of judgment is coming here's another problem for i the lord do not change therefore o children of jacob uh, uh, therefore you o children of jacob are not consumed i do not change therefore you are not consumed what does he mean by that Why? Why is there mercy for Jacob? Because he has a covenant. I I am still faithful to my covenant, or else you would be dust on the earth. That's basically what he's saying. If I wasn't true to my own name and to my word, you would be obliterated right now. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. This is how the covenant works, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, prosperity gospel people go crazy with this. All right? 
first of all, we don't worship in a temple, okay? So the tithes that were, were given to the temple were a specific call to the temple. It was a specific tithe. This is a tithe of everything, 10% of everything, okay? So, first of all, they're robbing. Why are they robbing the temple of the tithe? They haven't given it. Why? They kept it. Yeah, why, why did they keep it? Same reason they give blind animals to the sacrifice. Yeah, because who cares? It doesn't really matter. God's not going to do anything about it. No, no, no. It's another indictment against you as a nation. You're robbing me. The reason that they're not giving is because they don't trust the Lord at all. And what he's saying is, if you give, how do you restore the covenant? Well, you start doing what you're supposed to do. And when you start doing what you're supposed to do, you'll see that there is a return on that, right? That the relationship of the covenant is restored. But, but friends, we don't live under a covenant that needs to be restored. We live under a covenant that has been finished, right? Okay, so we can talk about that another day, but just let's move on. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. That is the pestilence and the plague that's, that he sent as judgment, essentially. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. That's what we were talking about. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. In other words, the evil are not punished and the good are not rewarded. So what is the point? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The evil aren't punished. What's the point of following God? The good aren't rewarded. And he's saying, well, you don't even do what you're supposed to do. All of you are evil. What are you talking about? You're not punished. Look at the pestilence that's coming upon you. They are robbing God by not giving a full tithe. They have also spoken ill of God by thinking it is of no profit to serve God and instead envying the evildoers who seemingly prosper without punishment. So, what do we get at the end? Look at this. When that day comes, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Uh-oh, they hear the words of the prophet. Those who feared, theme running through this book, feared the Lord, spoke with one. Is that everybody? Nope. Not everybody. There are some that fear the Lord in the nation of Israel. They speak with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to esteem His name. They shall be mine. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Was that a whole nation? The whole nation is His? No. Those who fear Him and esteem His name, they are His, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son, who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous 
and the wicked. Remember, he's dealing with Israel here. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. At the end of Malachi's prophecy, those who fear the Lord, who were not the same as the arrogant and evildoer, verse 15, but were true believers, will be separated from those who only pretend to serve the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all, that sound familiar? When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. For, though, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him in all of Now, you read that and you go, Oh, that sounds like final judgment. He's going to hell. He's going to send like a burning oven. He's going to throw them throw in hell. Well, remember what I've been telling you about the prophets. You need to stop at the cross first. All right? All right. The statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you... Who is it? Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That means the ancients of old will turn them. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. On the day of the Lord, the arrogant evildoers will be burned, and those who fear the Lord will be healed. This day will be signified by the coming of Elijah the prophet. Now, I want you to turn in your packet just real quick to see when that day is. The very last set of verses that we got there in your packet. And it comes to us in Luke 1, 13 to 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What is the angel telling John the Baptist's father? Malachi? Is the day he was talking about is coming right now, and John the Baptist is that Elijah figure. What does Jesus then say in Matthew eleven thirteen to 15? For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you understand what Malachi is saying, then you understand who John the Baptist is. He's coming to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what does that mean then when we see in, in, uh, in Malachi where he's saying, on that day, the day of the Lord, you will run out of the stall like a leaping calf and you will tread under you the, the wicked and the, and the foolish. 
because you have been secured in the kingdom of Christ, you have no fear of death. You have no fear of judgment, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you run out of the stall like a leaping calf, and for those who are subject to the judgment and the coming judgment of Christ, they are forewarned about that by the preaching of the gospel. When they hear, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, believe on the Lord, and you will be saved, and they walk out of here unbelieving because they don't want to believe and they don't want to come to repentance because they don't want to confess their sin and they don't want to be obliged to have to serve the living and triune God, they are judged already. It's a precursor to judgment. It's a forewarning about what is coming. And whether they want to admit it or not, they know it's true. I read an article this week, and we got to go, but I read an article this week that said 17 proofs that we are created by an intelligent race of aliens. <laughs> now, I'm reading, I read, uh, they suckered me in, all right? I'm like, you got me. I'm going to read it, all right? I got to read it and see what you got to say about this. It, yeah, yeah. It is more logical and accepted in our culture to believe we are either a computer simulation or the product of a race of intelligent aliens than it is to believe we have been created by a living, triune, holy, and righteous God. Why? Because we don't have to worship the aliens or the software programmer that made us. But if God, who is holy and righteous, did, then we owe our fealty to Him. That is the problem. Make no mistake about it. It's not the intelligence of the argument. That's a lie from the pit of hell. They don't even believe that. All right? It's not because being created by God is so stupid. Ask them how we got here. You'll hear stupidity. All right? It's not any smarter or more intelligent to believe in evolution or whatever the going theory is now. It's not. That's a lie. The problem is they don't want to bow down to the one true living God. That's the problem. So when you share the gospel, or when you're presenting what salvation actually is, we're not, we're not making logical comparisons to the person who doesn't believe. We're not, we're not trying to know all the arguments and the counter-arguments. No, no, no. We're presenting the one true living God and we're saying you either bow down to him as king now or you do it later. But you're going to like the results if you do it now. Later, it's going to be forced upon you and you're not going to like it as much. And judgment is going to go far differently for you. That's what we're presenting. We're presenting worship before them. We're not presenting some mental exercise. Oh, I can believe Jesus rose from that. That's not what we're doing. We're saying worship the one true living God. That's the argument. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for all that it means and all that it says. We're grateful for what bearing it has on our life and what it means for us. So we pray that you would make that true for us as we leave, that you would bear out in our hearts and our lives the fact that we believe Jesus is king. And let's present that to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.